0: so, that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Jeff.
1: Hello, glad to be here.
0: Fantastic. So, we're going to be talking about a lot of interesting things today. When I read your book, the thing that struck me was, when you read about big IT projects and so on, nobody talks much about the rollout of India's biometric system. But when you look at the scale of what was involved, I mean, it's over a billion citizens, speaking multiple languages they had problems in the past legacy systems getting it all talked to talk together it seemed that it should have failed but it was rolled out better than expected so that's the genesis that's where everything started maybe as a starting point we can talk more about what inspired infosys to look at this rollout to make all the changes for the living enterprise?
1: I think there are a few dimensions to it. One is, it's not just about that. Sure. It's just so noteworthy that it's a good organizing principle. Nandan Nilekani, who is a iconic figure, yes. I don't think I'm stretching to say that, in, in India and worldwide, was one of the leaders of Infosys from a startup, and seven gentlemen with a few hundred dollars worth of loans from their wives basically grew this thing. And so it's a, it's a great story. Mm-hmm. And then he decided to step out and serve the government, in this case India, and as a, like a minister almost. It's just some large, large, large program of applying tech to the masses. And, and I think after going through this and, and applying some business concepts in the government, which I think in India is even harder than it yeah. is in the U.S., Western Europe, just to let it go at yes. that, and in applying these principles like do open source, be flexible, take advantage of technology, agility, and then the ability to change rapidly, but really doing it very slowly, incrementally, so people don't feel like their whole world's changing, and then having a vision and driving it through. And of course, the petri dish of 1.x billion people, yes. going from not as far along to as far farther along than many people, and needing to do it in a hardened environment you know, where some of it isn't pristine, yeah. uh, lots of documentation, yes. high bandwidth and all that, you know, very much out in villages. And so I think the fact that it was able to do, be done there and then he reentered the corporate world, came back in 2017 yeah. uh, beginning. I think that's what made it unique. Take a business concept, make, you know, apply it successfully at scale and quickly uh, in a government environment, in a non-Western environment too, yes. I think that's also something interesting. Being able to apply a non-heavy U.S. or Western European bias to something where you have more of a global perspective, and then reapplying it at a time when—I'll uh, be honest—you know we were going through uh, tougher times at Infosys, which would probably be okay times for anybody else. But you know, yeah. the the thing that got you to where you, you where you were was uh, asymptotically starting to taper off. And so what's the next thing? What's the next big wave and, and macro trend? And I think that was what made it really interesting is the applying what worked at scale and being flexible with the IDAR, the, you know, the, the India Stack Initiative, yeah. into a situation where you had multiple nonlinear convergent technologies, to quote you know, Peter Diamandis and the others. I think the combination of all those things and trying to do that for a company that was successful... But trying to get past the founders' mentality yes. to a longer-term, you know, very global company.
0: So let's um, let's synthesize that a little bit for our listeners, and then we'll take it from there. So the founder, one of the founders of Infosys, steps away from a very successful business to take on a noble role to help the government with one of its signature policy moves. Mm-hmm. Brings in certain principles he. New from Infosys, he obviously made some adaptations for a government project. Successfully rolled this out by most conceivable measures, and then he moved back to Infosys. So let's talk a little bit about what did he do differently that made this a success.
1: First of all, he didn't bring in wholesale change. He worked with the team he had. Yeah, which meant which which is hard because it's often hard to introduce significantly improved results Yes. Uh, with the same team. The reason it was so important is we have this term called social capital Yeah. that when you get a senior executive team who's worked together for a long time, maybe they knew each other when they were managers and directors yeah. and, and working their way up, there is such an element of trust. Growing up in Indiana and playing basketball, we call yeah. these no passes. You know what I'm saying? You can you anticipate and, and there's yes. a trust. Uh, you have to be the best of friends there's just a good implied professional trust i think that allowed several of these things to happen that's a theme so yes. bigger decisions could be made because you knew the person and you know generally speaking everyone's pulling in the same direction and mm-hmm. and and i think there's also the sense that there was something bigger a bigger purpose that the company did a lot of good to the foundation a lot of good for sustainability and other types of things and trying to go to that next level there was a lot besides simply trying to squeeze out a few extra dollars. The genie was still in the bottle from that standpoint. And there's a lot of goodwill, I think, that people wanted it to be successful. Certainly the the, the press and investors in India and I think global in the tech world. Yes. And I think the other thing that, that made it successful is our 1,400-plus clients. And it's not meant to be a sales pitch at all. It's just sure. it's a long relationship. I think like a, many professional services firms, when you start having – 10, 15, 20 year relationships yeah. and you've got hundreds if not a thousand people, you know, working together, you buy from, you sell to and you, you partner together on on offerings. I think that also creates a, a sense that people want to be successful and do what they can if they sense that the right things are in place.
0: So he came back to Infosys and then where does the idea of the living enterprise come from? Was it a, was it a deliberate attempt to understand what had worked on this project was it opportunity to synthesize what it worked across many emphasis clients how does this concept come together and what is the concept
1: the live enterprise yeah this is what we call it and initially we began thinking about awareness the world is moving too fast there's a phrase that i used to use a lot and i think everybody yes. uses now that the, the business pace moves much more quickly than the ability for companies to to conceive of and deliver large programs yes. Used to be maybe the programs were five years, the business would move in two, but whatever it is, now it's less than a year and you've got to move quickly, but you've got to pour some concrete to build your, your foundations. Mm-hmm. So there's this dichotomy that really causes angst. And I think the ability to be aware and respond quickly and accurately, that awareness, there's a concept called sentience. Mm-hmm. you know, sentient beings, which in the U.S. at least has a bit of a sinister <laughs> view, like the, yes, like the, the eyes of the machines, yes. exactly, uh, or the robots. And so partly because of that connotation and partly because it was more than simply being aware, there's a living, organic, evolving aspect. So live enterprise was that, but it didn't stop at a, a, a marketing buzzword or a phrase. Mm-hmm. If you peel it back, nature does provide a lot of cues. And if you go into biomimicry, yeah. It's a fascinating area. There are some really complex things that happen just below the surface, whether it's the murmuration of birds, how sure. there is no leader, but you take the cues from the six or seven birds around, and they have these fantastic flock flock formations and uh, movement. So, so part of it is there's adaptation, and part of it is evolution. Mm-hmm. And there's a micro evolution and a macro. The micro is responding very quickly to change. And then the macro is having the – the large blocks in place like capabilities yes. and direction and culture and if you look at nature there are the big macro changes over time and then you have a lot of these small things that are happening almost on a daily basis and there's another aspect of the live enterprise people don't realize that nature is experimenting like yes. crazy and and i think that was something we found rather than trying to be right in the so-called plant economy approach yeah if you can run many experiments simultaneously And maybe in a VC kind of way, evolve and, and, and promote and reward the ones that work, Yes. have a shared infrastructure, we call it a shared digital infrastructure, digital runway, where you can launch the successful ones and get them to scale so small teams can get the benefit of this large shared digital platform, then it works. And those are the concepts that taken together, even though it's very digital, It's live enterprise because it's really amplifying a human's ability. We call it maximum human intuition and minimum human intervention. So you can automate the things that are repetitive but really bring out those decision and intuitive aspects that allow better decisions to be made.
0: So let's think about it this way, right, to help our listeners. So imagine that you have a client who is the CEO of a large Fortune 1000 financial services company. And you've obviously, you know, you've got a lot of experience talking to these people, helping them frame their issues and so on. I think a lot of them would tell you they're already doing this. And I'm, I'm not saying they are, they are already doing this, but they will believe they're already doing this. How would you help them understand what they could be doing better by incorporating these principles? What should they be doing differently?
1: The first thing is to have a dose of humility and say, that sounds great. Can you share the results? Yeah. Are you happy? With them? There's a good chance that unless we're already in a close relationship, you know, maybe over the years, that the only reason we're speaking is because there is something that they're not quite happy with. Maybe it costs a lot more or, or it takes way too long to accomplish these things. Or maybe, and we see this a lot, they've got pockets. The phrase pilot purgatory yes. is out there. Where <laughs> a lot of folks do something small. Yeah. And I, There's no better, bigger fan of design thinking than me. And yet one of the things that I noticed, you know, as part of the, the lead group at Infosys where several of us would go out there and, and move it, that a lot of companies, you've got these pilots you, you, or, or proofs of concept, experiments, you show a result and it's localized, but it never scales. And as a result, you can't do anything large and complex unless you pull them together. Same thing with Agile. Mm-hmm. You know, folks in a garage in Silicon Valley sure. can, can create a product but can you manage 125 scrum teams at once? Can you do it when you're not all in the same room? Can you do it for infrastructure and architecture and things that don't lend themselves to feature enhancements or to very non-tech processes? That's where we saw companies struggle. And it also, let's face it, you can't all hire the top data scientists from Stanford. What about the broad part of the pyramid? they are digital skills that are needed, whether they're data analysts, whether they're process automation folks, but they might not be designing the next algorithm, but they're perpetuating it throughout a company. And I think that's where people struggled: is how do you integrate these good concepts like design thinking and even some of the lean startup types of things at scale? And you either, typically, you either had a strategist who could go to the whiteboard, do frameworks and, and, and lay out your good plan, or you had the plumber. Yeah. who could do things with apis and cloud and you could revision this and you could automate that but you didn't have this integrated viewpoint and last but not least the architecture that scaffolding that's required it was way too rigid or brittle it wasn't flexible and it's almost like it was a, an oxymoron what do you mean flexible architecture yeah yeah you have it because it's your structure and I think that you know building that flexibility in, these are the things that we saw executives struggle with, and to be honest, they weren't doing it at scale. And so those were, that's what bubbled up in our discussions.
0: So would you say that companies have these competencies, they do it well in pockets, they do it well in pilots, but it's the ability to do this at scale is the defining limitation for them?
1: The ability to do it at scale is absolutely a limit, because one, there aren't that many people with experience doing that. Yeah. They either have been in pockets or they've been part of a machine like we've sometimes uh, several years ago we oh there's this rock star join the company but they might struggle for a while because they left a system
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they were as much a product of that system yes. as they were the ability to create a system or adapt it uh, and sometimes it's because they came from a great firm who had that that mindset whether it's the way to do consulting or the way to do to implement technology or even, you know, a good HR system. So,
0: you know, as you know, very well, and even when I was back in the day, a partner talking to clients and so on, most companies and the executive team barely has the bandwidth to do what they are doing, Mm -hmm. let alone the bandwidth to go back and do a little bit of an autopsy, extract best practices, think about what worked, capture that knowledge, document it, rollout training and so on so in your experience how do you get executives to step back when they don't even have time to breathe how do you get them to pause reflect adjust experiment it must be difficult to do that
1: it is there are a couple of things one is you've got to think about the employee experience including the executive's experience like you do the customer experience. I think we did ourselves a disservice in business for, for many years where we would claim customer centric yet yeah. our employees got those green screens or they got the the crappiest systems. Yeah. You know, basically <laughs> they get the leftovers and yet we would say they're our best asset, right? The yeah. most important asset. And so again, that was a bit of a dichotomy. So one, I think there is a renewed effort. And of course the COVID is all, and the remote work has also done that, is realized we better make sure our people are productive and we care for some other needs, and it isn't just a few Silicon Valley folks all clamoring for the same talent. Yeah. You know, for free food in the cafeteria and bringing your dog. It's it's all these different sure. aspects of making it easier. The second thing is when there's this other responsibility built in, this idea of learnability and improvement that actually is hardwired into your metrics. I don't mean in a tactical way. I mean in a cultural way. Several of the offers in our own company across this live enterprise journey. They've come from somebody who led our training, and the platform worked well, and eventually it became an offering. Things that we were doing with cloud, things that we're doing in our own company. In fact, Nandan you know, Nilekani, one of the one of the core principles was, we can't take anything outside until we show that it worked internally first. Yes. So it's different from a lot of companies, but it it forced people to think like that. And so, I also believe that you know we're long past the hardcore hierarchies hierarchical models for the organization but still i think many companies have vestiges of that left i believe when when the executives are viewed by their skills and expertise and their ability to do something not just manage something yes i think you have more time freed up and, and you know you, you and i have that background in, in consulting where the partner uh, is kind of the expert in doing certain things they're they're not an administrator yes they can't be uh, and I believe that has crept into the more successful companies. If you look at, I mean, Rafi, my, my the co-author with this, uh, I would put him up against any technologist on the planet. He's our more or less our CTO. He's mm-hmm. the head of architecture for the entire company. And yet he's in the engine room all the time. He is as good a practitioner as you're going to get. And yeah. our president, Ravi Kumar. I mean, you, down the list as you talk to people, they're pretty hands-on. Yes. And so it does amaze me. But I think what happens is you just focus on what's most important. You delegate as much as you can to your next level for those things that maybe in the past is a leader you may have taken on. It's development opportunity for them. And when when you start realizing your path to impact is through being a practitioner, an expert practitioner, as well as it is uh, making decisions and pushing information to different people, then I think you start to get the right uh, result and you start to leave that old, I don't have time for this behind.
0: So speaking to, I think it was Ram Charan or Gary Hamill, I can't remember who, and they were making a very similar point you were making, because it seems that it boils down to whether you can find a way to treat your employees, not as an abstraction or an obstruction or someone you need to manage very tightly, but you got to find a way to almost unleash them and create systems and processes incentives whereby employees almost run little businesses by themselves which is a different model from the way businesses traditionally run itself right they have this very hierarchical top-down structure will tell you what to think will tell you what to do we don't want you to do anything except what we want you to do
1: that's so well put because if you flip the organizational model and all of a sudden your leaders are on the front line they're handling your hardest problems or socially, or, or org design. If you, first of all, deep down, every good leader wants that, you know why? Yeah, that's what got them into doing what they were doing. They dread looking at 200 evaluations and hitting that button over and over on how many approvals and who's rating and yes, adjudicating disputes and budgets. All important at the same time, there is such a sense of. Um, uh, productivity and impact Yeah, through that. And of course, now with the tools we have, you can reach so many people directly. I and mean, People have social media presence. They have that inside the company. They're, so you have followership, and there are all kinds of implications there. And we, we just see that as a natural tendency that good companies today, the ones that can move quickly, their leaders seem to be in two places at once. They're doing the old types of work, getting, they're getting it done, and yet they're also very visible. How does he or she have time to be on that panel? Yes. How does he or she have that time to be on that steering committee for the new product rollout or the new org design or the new you know, whatever that's going on in the company? And again, if you're in professional services, whether it's investment banking or advertising, accounting, consulting, you get that because that's the partner model or the producer model. But I think for, for business, mm-hmm. people gravitated. I remember Tom Peters you know, reading some of his things yeah. early in my career And he had a few sayings about where things were going. And in some cases, he was a little ahead of his time. But they were right. We came to a project mentality, to people emulating the professional services firm approach because it's fluid and it evolves. And the trick is how do you make it work, though, beyond one team or a dozen or the amount that a partner, so to speak, can manage? That's the trick. And I also think that there's been two or three Besides just general tech, two yeah. or three advancements, to tell. One of them, and I think it's not gotten the play that it should, uh, until certainly we put it put it out there, is this idea of a knowledge graph. People know about Facebook's social yeah, graph, yeah. and Google the ability to map everything. That's going All on in institutional your knowledge. Yes, and you've got that's pretty impressive as well as, it is. And I'm i I did not appreciate that until really digging with the book because again. Rafi, my co-author, and a lot of the tech folks in the engine room yeah. we're doing some things bottoms up that have made a lot of this possible. The other thing is what we call a digital brain. I know it sounds corny, yeah. but the ability to have this, these rules, some are deterministic, which is a great place to start. RPAs yes. everywhere, robotic process automation. And then you can start to move towards this awareness when you've got such inexpensive sensors and you have so much going on. You can start to have these rules-based decisions which again the more of those that happen and the easier it's like an iron man suit you know all of a sudden yeah. humans can get so much more done the combination of those two things i think has also allowed senior people to act more quickly more decisively uh, with with greater confidence
0: so i want to stitch together some of the very interesting points you're making so the listener can piece it together as well i'm going to go through it step by step and just make sure we're we're getting it for them right the first thing we're talking about is in a live enterprise, you move away from a system whereby corporate manages employees to corporate finding a way to support employees at doing what they do very well. Is that a good way of summarizing it?
1: Yes, I really like that word unleash because if you hire good people, That's go with now, unleash. Yes, they, yes, they want to do that. And you're giving them the opportunity to do so and you're rewarding the ones that do it the best
0: okay that's good because i think when people listen to this that's what we're talking about it's a significant mindset shift because everywhere you look whether it's media whether it's most mba programs whether it's most corporate training programs people seem to gravitate towards a command and control structure because they think being a boss that tells people what to do is a sign of success and we're saying that's not the best way to get what you need from your employees right Mm -hmm. then the next part which i really liked and i do want to unpack this because i'll give you some examples i speak to a lot of senior partners in consulting firms and one of the points i always make to them is that the firms can do much more be more effective if they had a way to capture their institutional knowledge document it and make it quickly available to whomever needs it anywhere in the organization as soon as they need it in the format they need it so they can do their job without any friction and everyone tells me yeah we have a knowledge management system and i'm telling them that's not the same thing so let's talk about this knowledge map and what you call the the digital brain because let's unpack how that can give companies an advantage because i think a lot of people think they are doing it but all they have is a few files in a database somewhere that is not correctly tagged and coded. And it's not the same thing.
1: Mm-hmm. I think there's two aspects. Let me start with the tech piece first, that even if you want to do some of these things, you might you know, knit your brow and say, oh, no, this is yeah. another three-year program. By the time I implement it, we'll be doing something else. Why bother? What's interest Or we have such institutionalized systems and legacy systems that's hard to change. Yes. What we did, and I, what we see a lot with clients, there's this phrase that sounds pretty boring, but it's important, legacy modernization, where you, you say, you know what, we're not going to touch those millions of lines of code. In some yeah. cases, mainframes or whatever's been around. But you build something around it, and you extract it, and you can create a mobile app or a better better skin, you know, better interface. And we added something like 120 employee applications. Mm-hmm. Everything from your time to your health and travel wow, that's a lot. which you know in a global company. There is lots and lots of things. We consolidated them to four and their apps. And again, they're all very secure, authentication yeah. and all the types of things. The first thing was do it fast via the app and then gradually we're going back to reskin some of the things. So we didn't have to spend lots of time. And by the way, we didn't do this all at once. Every six weeks the entire company clicks one step closer to wherever it needs to be. So every six weeks there's a release. Six weeks was enough to get something substantial done, mm-hmm. and yet we're moving. And it isn't such a big change that people can't adopt. We use this phrase micro-change management. There are things like tiny habits, atomic habits, yeah. nudge. You know, you've seen these books out there, and we took them to heart, that a lot of the psychological um, underpinnings in organizational behavior, if you give somebody a nudge, they don't feel like it's a big change. Yes. Yeah, I'll just incorporate my routine. And every six weeks, you next thing you know, you look back a year later, I made a bunch of small changes, and we're in a very different place right now, which is good, and we're not going back. That's change management, not this massive forms-driven PMO office, lots of meetings flying yeah. around and fancy workshops. It's just when you make changes. And again, this is based upon, as they say, the science Yeah. Uh, and small changes. The key, though, is these are small changes that you don't go back to the where you were before. Yes. So the other thing is that the processes that you have and the work that you're doing, you, you need to reduce the 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 perceived value of fiefdoms. Because I, I don't know about you, but I've been on the good side and the not so good side earlier in my career about places that thought if you knew something it was valuable and if I shared too yeah. much then you know. And I've been in places that's the opposite. It's just flowing. Yes. Everybody was going at the the, the result. For the client, for the engagement, for, and those are just wonderful places that attract people because you can focus on the work Yes. and you feel like you've got support. And I I also submit that a small company who properly harnesses all their information will run circles around a large one that's in silos because I've been there. I've been the underdog and it was really neat to be able to bring more information to the table and appear to be having an upper hand compared to that behemoth that literally these groups were almost competing with each other inside the company. Yeah. So I think that's an important aspect as well. And with the, uh, and again, APIs, application programming interfaces, sound like a very technical term. Yes, yeah. But I think if you just imagine, I call it ethical switchboard, you know, back in the 50s, you know, people were connecting. Yes. Uh, in back in the day, interfaces were hard. They were programs yeah. into themselves. If you got it right, great, but hold your breath. Because if anything changed, even data formats, there were issues. Yeah. Technology, this middleware, And a good part of the contribution from Silicon Valley and the VCs is all these firms you've never heard of that have made that part easier. The connections just happen, and you can focus on the work, and the information is brought to you, and you can use it in these routines, whether it's our sales systems. Every one of our salespeople, they now know so much that's brought to them about their clients about the opportunities. Uh, managers know so much about their employees, uh, even if, well, they didn't this or didn't do that, maybe they have an issue, You know, maybe I should check in with them more, especially now when you're working remotely, you know, for recording this. So I think that's the, the, um, the knowledge graph's real input, is it allows someone, without spending all the time on the administrative, to get the results of, of the phone calls and the follow-ups. The digital brain, again, I think robotic process automation and just general workflow advances, whether it's what's in the Microsofts and the Apples or the the, the Pega systems and the SAPs and the other the other know uh, Salesforce of the world, these workflows are built in mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you don't have to be a programmer. The democratization of these tools is incredible. And I think that as, as soon as someone says, you know what, if software is indeed eating the world, as Mr. Andreessen said, then that means processes are gradually being digitized or rapidly being digitized which means these things we thought were manual before are actually digital yes. which means that you have such power uh, and conversely if you avoid it you're really putting yourself at a weakness oh i'm a strategy person i'm, I'm not attacking you like that that's for the coders well i view it as a language just like you might decide to learn german or you might learn something yeah. else if you learn a computer language or at least the the approach, the thinking, the frameworks behind it, then you're allowing yourself to be much more adaptable and productive.
0: What you're saying is very true and very fascinating. And I want to make sure the audience doesn't lose some of the insights here because we're talking about how to unleash your employees. So we know that's the overriding objective, right? And then we're talking about certain things companies can do to achieve that goal. The first one we spent a lot of time talking about was how you can take manual time draining processes that require employees to step out of what they're being paid to do to complete some forms, these can now be automated, so that employees can be freed. right, so that we spoke about that. The other one is how do you take knowledge that a firm has, and make it available to everyone when they need it. I mean, I'm speaking to a partner the other day. And he was telling me, well, you know, all of the work I've done for the last 10 years at the firm is available in a knowledge management database. And I said, yeah, that's true. But do the people that need that know where it is and know where to find what they need within all of those documents? I don't think they know that unless they search for exactly how that file is named, right? Others going to be sit there and it's going to be used maybe a little bit, but coming back to technology, right? You spoke about nudging, which I think is a very important concept here, because when we talk about rolling out changes in behavior at companies, We tend to, as Americans, like to do things in a big, bang, flashy, scaled process. But what you spoke about there is, how do you get people to change with nudges so that you modify their behavior and routines in a way without them knowing there's a big change taking place? It's very different from the way people like to do things because we're almost groomed to think, hey, we're going to have this program, we're going to bring an emphasis to someone else, We're going to keep them here for one month, and everything we need done is going to happen in one month, and we're going to be a brand new company. But what you're saying is it's almost an incremental process. You've got to be constantly identifying things you want to change and modify and constantly nudge employees. It almost never ends. Is that a good way of capturing it?
1: Yes, yes. And that last sentence is so important that there's, you know, Cervantes from Don Quixote, he said, the journey is better than the end other words, the, the success of realization of these worthy goals
2: yeah.
1: is realistically what your goal is, because as long as you're continuing to do that, then you aren't worried about achieving the thing and then stopping. And it says it's not a recipe for never being happy. It's the opposite. You've got to accept it. Exactly. In fact, embrace it. Yeah. Because if we do say the continuous improvement is a good thing. is continuous, uh, we as have a, the
0: name says. Yes,
1: yes. And and a, a concept I don't know if we coined the term or not, but yeah. one of our founders framed right, a term called learnability. The yeah. this the act you know the ability to learn. Yeah.
2: Because you
1: will think about it, how are kids or, or anyone really taught to learn? They're taught stuff, but but learning how to learn.
2: Yes. And, and learning I, how to I think learn. Well,
1: as soon as as soon as we incorporate that, well, guess what? You will use that knowledge management more, and, and people lean in to 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 wanting to share because it's a self reinforcing uh, structure. I, I I tell people if you really want to know something, go teach it (laughs) (laughs) because that will reinforce because it's one thing to know something. It's another to articulate it, to put it in words so that the person listening to your message is hearing that pipe of comprehension from them gets broad and very quickly. In fact, that's probably like in your consulting days, the reason that uh, senior executives pay rather large fees to consulting firms, the best ones, let's say, mm-hmm. are because they can get more in 10 minutes or an hour than maybe somebody gave them in a week, yeah. at least it's valuable. It's synthesized, not summarized, not watered down, and not just dumped like a pile of bicycle parts on the table in front of you and say, here's your bike. No, it's assembled, it's tuned, and is an instruction, and a little guided a demo, and you can now use it very quickly. A complex thing made a little less so.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember a few years ago, I was speaking to the chief technology officer of a very large, well-known financial services group. And he was telling me, yeah, we had a continuous improvement program that ended four years ago. And I'm thinking, but it's called continuous improvement. How can you end it four years ago, right? It should be ongoing. And if you think Mm -hmm. about the concept of a live enterprise, just to get listeners to understand this better and tell me if I'm uh, paraphrasing it. Well, yeah, it's almost as if you, Treat a company like it's a person, right? Or an organism, as you say very well in several parts of the book. And like any live organism, you've got to continuously be adjusting and learning new skills as the environment changes. And if you don't keep learning and you don't keep adjusting, you're going to eventually be replaced. So that, to me, is something companies don't do very well. Because it's almost as if every CEO comes in and feels he's got to right the ship as opposed to preparing the company to always be going through a process of renewal. It's almost the way we measure CEOs is incorrect. We reward a CEO for someone who takes a company to a point where we say they don't need to do much more, they're doing everything right, rather than saying, hey, this guy has put the company in a position whereby it's continuously changing continuously adapting and it has a way of reinventing itself it's almost as if we're prioritizing and rewarding ceos for the wrong things
1: well said Uh, i think a couple points come out one it's and maybe it's because early in my career when i was serving clients worked with a lot of closely held large family and i'll call them maybe mid-tier companies where they're a lot more private companies and it was amazing the mindset they took they thought longer term yes and they 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 didn't some of the language that we take for granted yeah for large public companies never even crept into vocabulary wow. yeah they had to they had a financial statement and they had but again they they thought about things longer term and one of the things love him or not love him or hate him Mr Bezos over at Amazon the one yeah. of the things that stands out uh, is his ability as a publicly traded company to think long term. And in his mind, you know, or his his approach was to defer profits. That you know, was one of the, but just this, the ability to have a long-term goal in mind that he was willing as a publicly traded firm to still do that. I think that there are plenty of other reasons why, or other reasons why he's been successful. That is not a small part of it though.
0: Yeah. I was uh, speaking to some, I can't remember who it was. It was a senior partner at uh, Banyan. I can't remember his last name, first name Jeff. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me, he was talking to me about a company that has been around for 45, I think, generations. 45 generations. Can you imagine 45 generations? And he said that the thing that stands out for him is, as you've said clearly here, is that they don't think about profits. They don't think about shareholder return. That's not what drives them. They What drives them is the need to be the best, the need to solve a problem. But most importantly, especially if it's a smaller business, the identity of of the founder of families so closely woven to the business that it's a sense of a personal mission and pride to build a legacy. And what I find today when you, you know, in the corporate world, it's almost as if we don't look for those people that are personally vested in a business to run it. We look for the smartest person who went to the best school and had the best exit five years ago and we bring them in to run the business. And if they fail, They're going to leave, get a better job. But it's it's that sense of pride and belonging that's almost missing in many companies that don't have that sustainability with them.
1: Well said, because personally, uh, growing up on a farm and and knowing, having a farm in our family for seven generations, for example, and, and having a lot of that around. You grow up thinking that's the way it is. Yeah, If it, it's an aberration not to. And then you hit the corporate world. And emphasis obviously hasn't been around for 45 generations. Yes, but in a sense, there has been that continuity, and there is a sense. I call it the genie still being in the bottle. There's still a sense of that, especially yeah. among the older guard. You know, the, the old guard of it. And I think that is something people do have. A, they really feel there's a legacy. Uh, and again, plenty of warts. You know, every company has them. But I think that that is an element that's there. Yeah, I, I just think that sense of uh, pride. And that sense that it's going beyond. I, I think for talent, we had a discussion on talent. Yeah. I think finding a way for someone to be part of something bigger than themselves. Yes. Uh, sense of purpose. And again, you know, I'm well past what I'll call the the, the new you know, generation coming out of college. You know, there's, there's plenty of years separating. One of the things I like a lot about the more recent hires, uh, I do think it's a sense of purpose. Um, not all, maybe sometimes misguided, sure. depending on. But I think. Having a sense of purpose, though, is great. And it really works when it can be aligned to something. Because you, you can't just ignore business. Yes. Even in a triple bottom line, even in this stakeholder capitalism, you have to have the engine that creates the goodness, that creates the, the values. Yes. You can use it to pay your people more, to, to invest, especially overinvest, maybe in an environment and social and everything else. So you have to be really strong. There is no political leadership or, or, or impact without economic leadership and impact as well i think that sense of purpose and it's one of the reasons why i really enjoyed not all partners something for love working with sure. people coming of school they didn't want to get the experts and yes system. i really enjoyed that though because there was such a sense of energy yeah and the learning you could take someone who had no experience in an area if you gave them the frameworks the guidance showed them and worked very closely intensely for yes. a little bit backed away it's amazing what a committed um intelligent hard-working person can do especially if they if there's a sense of purpose and it's hard in any in any company but if you can get that i do believe that's a it's an element of it
0: yeah i mean what you said is 100 percent correct and to build on that you know if you look at most companies that belong to a similar sector we can take consulting firms for example or even emphasis in the tech space over time their competitors reach parity on certain assets that they have in the case of consulting firms it's whether it's frameworks and toolkits and methodologies right but when firms reach parity in those capabilities what distinguishes them is their culture and sense of purpose because the really good firms have a very almost distal sense of purpose so that when you leave these people alone in a room and they have to make a decision for which they will never be called out, you know they'll make the right decision. But you've seen if you've seen scandals with many firms across many sectors whereby they may have the right assets, but if they don't have the right sense of purpose, they ultimately mess up and sometimes fail miserably. And it seems if you want to, you know, as you say, as Infosys has a legacy, a culture where people believe they're pursuing something greater than themselves. Unless you have that, at some point, someone's going to catch you up. Someone's going to replicate what you have. So how do you do that? How do you build this greater-than-yourself sense of purpose at a company? How has Infosys done that? How have you seen other clients do that?
1: Well, I think we had our ebbs and flows. Um, Yeah. I believe that it was there. I joined in two thousand five, so I've you know almost sixteen years. and yeah. I've seen a lot growth from a billion to 13, 40,000 employees to two hundred and fifty thousand almost, and, and wow. from one of the first people in our consulting unit. So, so yeah, I've seen a, a lot of iterations there. Uh, I think once the original founders had kind of reached the end, you know, of their time as CEO, I think there was a staleness that was setting in operationally. Fantastic. I think there is just a starting to see, not the end of, but, but maybe, like I said, asymptotically coming to a flat level. And what I think is amazing, it's almost like a new S curve has been introduced. Yes. So continuous improvement can, can, has a place to flourish again. I think periodically, a continuous improvement only mindset, can anybody say Japan in the 1990s? Yeah. yeah. Uh, reaches a logical conclusion. It isn't that it's bad, it's fantastic. It's compound interest, but with a ceiling. And then every once in a while, you have to inject this very fresh, dramatic thing, Yes. Uh, or at least continue that refreshing of you know, the innovation or these fresh ideas. It's the combination. Uh, I love the the concept of a duality, mm-hmm. either dichotomous or at least you know non-coupled thoughts that you hold simultaneously, like continuous improvement in creativity. Yeah, they're not the same. It's like a lawyer almost arguing two sides of a case. You have to keep both of these in mind and periodically shift to one mm-hmm. or the other. And and I think what emphasis did is it was able to shift it very efficient for a long time. And then I think it shifted towards the the freshness aspect. Uh, and again, credit to CEO we had for some time, uh, Dr. Vishal Sika, who interjected a love again of the, uh, of the of the programmer, yeah, of the coder, not just the manager. Uh, and while no one's perfect, that element. Was like a jolt yes. that reinvigorated the practitioner. And then when Nandan came back, he brought back you know several other items. And so I think that um, if companies can balance those two, and their HR policies and their people culture reflects it, I think there are a lot of different ways to organize for it. But but if keeping those in mind, I think will allow this other word. And I do want to make sure we cover it. Resilience. I know it's been used a lot this year. Yeah. But I just. I've become very enamored with it over the course of the last year because, you know, I was part of the lean movement. All these greasy, smelly factories throughout <laughs> the American Midwest and yeah. most, almost every continent, and I really, I took pride in the ability to save people money, to clean things up, and if you ever read The Goal, you know, yes. I used knew some people who were actually portrayed in that book, um, and so it was great. The issue, though, it got so lean that if you had a hiccup. If, they used to say in the automotive mm, world, mm. if you missed a four-hour window, yeah, you're in trouble yes. as a supplier. Well, and we've and, seen and, that, uh, that over the
0: last few months, right:
1: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, and even before that, the, the writing was on the wall because working with some of the largest high-tech companies, the Semicon, you know the, the, the Fuji the nuclear reactor in Japan yeah. and some of the tsunamis boom, their chips weren't there, and they were dead in the water. So gradually, for strategic commodities, buffers were built in. Yes. I mean, we believe in buffers, right? We have uh, life insurance, Yeah, right? That's why. Not because you want it. It's because it's a buffer built in, and we you, you weigh the odds. I think this year has taught us, and this goes back to the point about private companies in the sense of long-term purpose, mm-hmm. it's more important to be a little safer Yes, and buffer against the unlikely but dramatic bad thing rather than the likely but not guaranteed good thing or best you know, situation. you know, Maybe you should have ability to operate when there's no power. Yes. Maybe you should have the ability to operate even if people can't come to a place or yeah. you can't do certain things you took for granted. And I, and I believe that resilience, uh, especially with the administration in the U.S. coming in and even some of the changing winds um, worldwide, that there will be an appreciation not just for EBITDA. Yeah, so the ability for the stakeholder capitalism for the world economic forum you know, rippling some of these things because the ultimate resilience might be planetary resilience right yeah people resilience, monetary resilience your system of government resilience the ability to to function and hopefully function well so i think resilience is an important term but again you operate with that duality of um, of efficiency uh, so i think keeping both those in mind
0: well what you said now is very important so let's unpack that because i want the listeners to think about this very carefully the definition of resilience is where i think we hit a stumbling block and i'll give an example of this if you look at a extremely fit triathlete with very little fat on their body this person would be talked about photographed and featured in quite a few magazines because they have what many people would consider to be the ideal physique for a healthy lifestyle right but that person because of the little amount of fat they have on their body they have to consume a large amount of protein bars very frequently or they're not going to make it right and it only works for them if they have access to that supply versus someone else who may not be as lean but has a little bit more fat on their body and can operate for longer periods without the replenishment and for a long time, we've treated companies like that world-famous triathlete who only is world-famous if the supply system works for them. And we punished companies that kept stock on hand, that kept a buffer, that kept back cash and wouldn't pay it out as dividends, who wouldn't buy back stock. I mean, we've seen companies, their share prices took a hit. Do you think we'll now see a switch in the way we are valuing companies? in the strategies that they're pursuing, and what we consider to be resiliency. Will that definition change?
1: I'm going to answer that in about 20 seconds. Before that, in addition to the triathlete's body, or the the, uh, supply line, what about because you have one or two rock stars, if you lose them, you're in trouble? That too, yes. What about about if you're depending on very cheap debt or or some financial situation in the marketplace, kind of like before the Great Recession in 2009? So I think there are multiple ways that you can appear to be doing well when below the surface or not. Yes, I think it's important. And while time will tell if stakeholder capitalism will be as profitable, in the, you know, using yeah. the old metrics, as is the old shareholder capitalism, I do believe it will be more resilient because it will build in, some will say overhead, but certainly buffers, yes. that people will think about decisions a little more. People are going to think about the impact that when they buy something, about yeah. their suppliers, for example, these technologies, people don't realize what a, what a fundamental change they have on the way we operate. Like blockchain, for example, yes, it sounds like a cool thing on its own, but the real impact is going to be this visibility and provenance of the supply chain, and the ability to track and trace things you couldn't trace before. Which means these ideas about unfair labor practices and wages and counterfeit goods and conflict minerals, yes. All the orders stopped. Yeah, and and they were able to take a deep breath, realize they would literally have almost no shipments yes. for a month, or at least a period of time, and they were able to do that because of the way they were structured. They were a closely held company, and their their family had a very strong long term mindset. And it's amazing how they took care of what was important with with employees, families, and and the relationships they had with their suppliers and customers, and I had a front row seat as as to how I think it should be done.
0: I want to just talk more about resiliency because it's such a central component of a live enterprise. It seems to me, and tell me if you agree, that when we've been rewarding resiliency in companies, we seem to put an obsessive focus on performance without considering the health of the business. And what COVID has shown us is that quite a few businesses that were performing well were not that healthy. They didn't have the right processes to deal with disruptions. And maybe what we'll see going forward is the shareholding community starting to value health a little bit more than just performance.
1: It's funny you mention that because part of the work that I do at the Knowledge Institute yeah. is is our larger research work. You know, and there's a book project, a colleague of mine who I'm helping him with, and it's on smart spaces yeah, and smart buildings and Yes. And the reason I bring that up is that a large part of our research has been with firms that run like all of Manhattan's office space yeah, yeah. or massive companies that, that, that operate buildings or, or smart cities. And, and what you just said is so true, because the ability to literally monitor the health of the people in the buildings is now a critical success factor.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
1: And, and the guests that come in and – how they interact, and of course, just the systems for, for physical health. Then there's the actual, uh, I'll call it digital health. You yes. know, Are they strong enough that if employee works from home or from the office, it's seamless? You might say, of course, we have our VPN. Can you instantly switch 98% yes. of your people like that? And I'll tell you, we had to do that. I mean, many companies did. We had 200,000 people in less than a week that flipped from one to the other. And many of these people keep in mind we're dealing with client data not yeah. even our own yes and thankfully we had been down that cloud journey and this live enterprise journey um, for a while and I think that really separated the companies that took the step you know year two years ago and had yeah. some level of maturity with it and the ones that didn't uh, and I, I think that's also manifest you know showing the manifest how um, how resilience is gonna be measured going forward, can you anticipate not only the things that you you don't know, but even the things that you need to be able to do, just do them very easily to give flexibility.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny, right? Pre-COVID, before February of this year, when we talked about the health of a business, we meant assets, debt, liabilities, and so on. But now when we mean the health of the business, we quite literally mean the health of your employees. And whether you can measure that deal with it, help them, put in place the right processes. It's, it, it's as if the crisis has forced us to rethink the way we manage our businesses, but in a very fundamentally different way.
1: Agreed. And then there's the dimension of, of even business travel. Yeah. It's been the great burning platform or pushing somebody you know, to jump in the water and learn to swim because some things that weren't done before because it wasn't convenient, the perceived risks, the unknown. Well, we have to do it because alternatives worse. So let's try it. And no, no, let's not just try it. Let's make it work because we have to. It's amazing what we do when we have to. Yes. And now that it works, what are we going back to? Are we going back? You know, what kind of hybrid emerges?
0: Yes. All questions that the world is still trying to answer. And I'm sure you guys are helping them with that. Jeff, thank you so much. This was a fascinating call. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot and I think our listeners are going to enjoy it as well.
1: well I appreciate the, the way you asked the questions uh, in a very thoughtful way because uh, it helped us both dig a little deeper and I, and I truly hope that your audience finds a few insights they can take away because I, I think the, the stakes are too high. You yes. know, the companies that are out there, such an awesome opportunity. We don't need to churn through these. We don't need to have the S&P continue to shrink and it's, it's, it's longevity for yeah. companies. Why not actually flip this And let's have it start to be a little longer because the companies reinvent themselves.
0: Well, that's a good way of looking at it. Because I agree with you, a crisis is when the world responds best. And why should we let this crisis go to waste? Because we're seeing companies do things they had never considered before. And they seem to be doing a pretty good job at it as well, even though initially they were complaining a lot. But they got the act together. And it seems to be going pretty smoothly.
1: Agreed. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it.